Welcome to the Seven Innings Podcast, everybody. We've got a lot of ground to cover and cannot wait to do it with you as we move even deeper into the softball season on the road to the Women's College World Series. Beth Mullins, Michelle Smith, Jenny Dalton-Hill, Kayla Bro, Amanda Scarborough, and Jen Schroeder. We have uh, discussions this week with uh, Oregon and Illinois, two big uh, weekends for them. Also a revelation, if you will, a coach hitting that 1,000 win mark. And as always, we will shag some stats. Uh, please follow along at 7 Innings Podcast on your social media. That's where you can find your lineup card and follow along with all our discussions. Uh, we will uh, start off with the leadoff. And uh, what better place to talk about some of the great leadoff hitters around the country, uh, but also Jen Schrader, some electric defensive performances. And it, of course, starts again this week with Aaliyah Andrews at LSU. Yeah, Aaliyah, sorry, I thought Kayla was going to start with the leadoff because, guys, I definitely was not a leadoff hitter. Let's be very honest, okay? I was not dropping the drag butt to set the table at all for any offenses ever in my life, okay? But Aaliyah in the outfield, I can give love to defensive specialists, and she was in insane guys are you kidding me those catches and I saw Beth Tarina tweet you didn't know anyone could fly you haven't met the Andrews sisters because the I mean just the air that they're getting and I'm not just talking to one side in front of them it's like 360 around them I don't think that LSU needs any other outfielders I think they could just play one outfielder and maybe eight uh infielders and they're good I don't know Kayla what do you think Hey, I, I don't disagree with you. And you're right. Her like launch angle. I, we, we talk about that offensively. Her launch angle from diving is unparalleled pun intended. I'm going to take things though. I'm going to hit lead off though for our actual offensive leadoff hitters today. And there are some super talented leadoff hitters around the country, but I want to first start by saying what it takes to be a really good leadoff hitter. I think you need to be a tone setter, right? You need to know what your team needs of you. And that could be power. It could be on base percentage. It could be great at bats, whatever your team needs, you know what your job is and you have to execute in that role as a leadoff hitter. And the next really important thing that I look for in a really good leadoff hitter is they have to instill confidence in their other teammates. If you go and you're a leadoff hitter and you have a week at bat, you look at three pitches and you walk back to the dugout, you have done nothing for your team. If you go and you have a great at bat, you see some pitches, whether you get on or not, you're able to communicate effectively what the pitcher's throwing. That makes a great leadoff hitter, instilling, instilling confidence, setting the tone, setting the table. So there's different kinds of leadoff hitters, and I have three that uh, kind of stand out. Obviously, Aaliyah Andrews. For me, she's a true that speed, set the table. I'm going to use my slap game, my short game to get on. She has 16 singles out of her 20 hits total. She had the in the Parker this week, yesterday, or sometime, whatever day it was, uh, hit the in the Parker, and she doesn't have the power to get it out of the park, but, man, she used her wheels to get around. So there's that true speed table setter. Then you have somebody like Adasia Davis from Duke, who's having a phenomenal year so far. And she's your kind of all around like, hey, I'm going to be good at average. I'm going to have a little bit of power, a little bit of pop, a little bit of ability to hit the home run, but I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to get on base. So she's got like four doubles, four triples and three home runs. That's about as even as you can get from a leadoff spot. And then I also look at somebody like a bubble, Bubba Nichols for UCLA. She's not your typical leadoff hitter. 
but she's been hitting leadoff for UCLA. She's not having the greatest year statistically, but she's going to be an Olympian. And she is a very veteran leadoff hitter. Coach knows that you can trust her in that spot. She's going to have quality at bats. She might not do anything crazy speed wise, but she's going to set the tone from a mental and physical perspective for her team. And those are some good leadoff hitters that I I've seen. Yeah. I'm going to throw in uh, a couple of more that I had written down one Janae Jefferson for Texas. So steady. I mean, everything that you just named and listed Kayla, I think that Janae Jefferson does that as well. One of the most underrated uh, leadoff hitters and just players in the country. And not to mention too, she's hitting 625 with two strikes. So you, you talk about Kayla setting the tone that's setting the tone for your offense. Hey, with two strikes, we still have one left. We're going to make something happen. And she's the type too, that can lay down that bump that you mentioned, be able to hit the drive it in the gaps as well, no matter how many strikes she has on her. And then I also I'm going to point out Hannah Adams. She's only struck out one time all year, 486 batting average, and her on base percentage is 574. So over half the time that she's coming up to the plate, she's getting on base and continuing to set the tone for Florida. Um, True, true veteran. And I mean, she had that walk-off home run as well that I know that we're going to talk about later. So people that can do it all in all moments, all situations, just a lot of studs all across the country. Well, and when I think about a table setter at the top of the lineup, those are the ones that they just need to be on base all the time, no matter how they do it. So Michelle talks about, you know, the free passes. They're the ones that get hit or get on base with the walk. Limited strikeouts. The one that stands, there's a couple that stand out to me, Brooke Wilmis at Missouri. She's not a typical leadoff and she only has one strikeout on the season so far. She hits 458 and she was five for five against Florida State in that nine to five win. So for me, that's a great leadoff hitter against some quality competition. Also, Alyssa Palomino Cordoza. APC has power, has speed. And just sets the tone for Arizona and that for them with the kind of power that they have in their lineup, they just need somebody on to be able to be hit to to be hit around. And I just want to chime in real quick. Um, I love the fact like all these names we're bringing up are all women that I can promise you the pitchers are (gasps) cringing when it's their turn that right when the the lineup is rolling over and you know when that nine spot is up they're like oh my gosh all right I got to make sure I get the nine out because I can't have the one coming up. I mean so I love the fact that we're having the discussion and there's so many variables to these amazing leadoff hitters. Let, let's go standard bearers and let's talk all time. Uh, the, 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 the true tone setters of, in softball history, Smitty, who were some of those leadoffs on the Olympic teams that we, we need to be talking about as the all time greats. Okay. The energy that everybody knows is brought to the table is Dr. Dot Richardson. I mean, yeah. she was never on the ground. Her feet were always bouncing up and down and she was always like, woo, let's go, let's go. And it, it didn't matter what happened. She came back into the dugout and you're like, oh, we got this. We got this. This is easy. When you talk about instilling confidence, Dr. Dot was the one that was like, always telling everybody we're going to be, we're going to be mashing the ball. So I, w- I would definitely have to say Dr. Dot Richardson uh, is one of them. Uh, as well as Julie Smith, lots of speed. She was your typical speed athlete, number one hitter, but she was a righty. She wasn't a lefty and just was able to motor. So I would say those were probably two of the top two uh, number one hitters in the women's elite game. I know there's some at Arizona, JDH. Well, and I cannot let this go by without giving them some love because Allison McCutcheon leads the NC2A in career hits. She led off our squads in the 90s at the top of the lineup. She was maybe the fastest player at the time, also could hit home runs. So the the defense had to play her honestly. They couldn't crowd her because she 
drop it over the shortstop's head. She'd hit it over the wall or she'd drop a drag bunt, make you overthrow first base and get to third. I mean, she, to me, was the epitome of a leadoff hitter. And I was so grateful to play with her. I feel like we cannot have this conversation without mentioning Natasha Watley. Are you guys kidding me? One of the best of all time. And if you think of the name Natasha Watley, you think this big, strong girl who could, yeah, drop a drag butt or split the gap. But she wasn't like that as a freshman. She is someone who developed throughout her career and continued to get better and better. So I feel like Natasha Watley wins this prize. I think one of the biggest challenges for, uh, on our all-time team would be who would be our leadoff hitter, Caitlin Lowe or Natasha Watley? That, that would be the struggle. Shro, take us into the mind of the catcher when, when these you know, great leadoff hitters come to the plate. What are you thinking? Uh, what, are, what is your discussion with the pitcher? And I think more importantly in this day and age, are you talking at all with the umpire to plant the seed in his or her head? Hey, make sure they're not stepping out of the box on these it, slats. In this day and age with this rule, absolutely. I would be in his ear, not with my head turned just back, like we're best friends having a conversation, but you better be looking at her feet. Wait and a second, is Trotter <laughs> subtle in any way, shape or form? <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, sometimes. <laughs> but when you talk about Caitlin Lowe and Natasha Watley, for me, if Natasha, Watley's in that leadoff position uh, and she gets on as a catcher I am thinking oh my god now we've got Caitlin Lowe a lefty up to bat she's going to do something crazy in the box whether it's a you know bunt pull back distract me as a catcher Natasha's going to steal like oh are you I, I'm already about this because I know there's going to be a run second base nobody out and then Caitlin's going to bounce a ball uh, right up the middle and Tasha's going to score. It, imagine those two on the same team. Oh, I'm so glad they didn't go to college together. <laughs> Bro, is there anything that you're say, saying to the umpires at all when you're coming to the plate? Hey, you know, I've been working hard on this. My feet aren't getting out of this box. So don't whistle me on this. Hey, I, I feel for the lefties that are out there right now that deal with that out of the box thing, because it is such a tough thing to have, uh, you know, you grow up and, and they changed the rule recently. Like I grew up, I was taught you step on the line or over the line, you control the strike zone. You get that, you cover that outside pitch. So that was always just a natural part of what we did because that was in the parameters of the game. So now to have these, you know, players be in their 18, 19, 20 years of age, and they're trying to redo their footwork and change their mechanics. And it sounds very easy, but it's really not after doing it for 10 plus years before that. I think that's the challenge is trying to go to work and change your footwork. I mean, I wouldn't say anything to the umpire. I would do exactly what I'm doing. I'd just be very incognito. Hey, I'm just going about my business. You go about yours, call your strikes, like call your balls, whatever. I'm going to do my job. Hopefully on my feet are so fast that you don't even see me. <laughs> Well, the Tide have had some good ones, too, of course. Uh, uh, Brittany Rogers, Alyssa Brown is back and healthy. Who I, Refresh my memory. Did you lead off or did Fenton? Yeah, I let off. Me and Jen Fenton were the one-two punch, so I let off. And uh, there was a few games in the career that we switched just to change up the change up the flow a little bit. But um, I loved having a one-two punch. You talk about Natasha Watley, Caitlin Lowe. That was probably like one of the best parts of the game for me was knowing that somebody behind me was going to put just as much pressure on the defense and on the catcher as I was. So it was honestly, it was kind of like fun toying with people. I love that. All right. Leader in the clubhouse for the name for this, uh, this week's show one, two punch. Let's see if we can beat it as we move down the lineup card second on our lineup card, simply the number 33. 
as in 33 runs scored in one game off of a school record 28 hits for the new number one team in the land. And who wants to lead our discussion about Oklahoma and what the Sooners are doing, bopping out home runs left and right, throwing perfect games. I think three of them got in on a perfect game this past week. Smitty, Sooner Nation has got to be loving what's happening right now. Yeah, the, the Sooners are booming for sure. Um, I thought it was impressive. So they had broke it, the um, 28 hits. They had broke their last record of 24 hits that was set back in 2014. I thought that was kind of interesting. But when you really dive into that game, there were 12 different Sooners that had RBIs in that game. I mean, think about it there's nine in the starting lineup. So that means that if you just start looking at that game, it's just like, wow, it's mind blowing. Um, you know, they're a complete team. And this is another one of those programs. They have power, they have speed, they hit for average. Um, they move the defense. So they just create a lot of offensive havoc. And when you're a pitching staff trying to go against them, it's really hard. You've got to be able to throw to every quadrant. You've got to be able to mix speeds, um, but they're, they're just, super powerful and another one of those teams that we, we see a lot of depth and Patty's trying to keep everybody healthy. So she's going to um, get your pencil and your eraser out when you're calling their games. Cause there's going to be a lot of changes on your scorecard for sure. They're, they're an ERA killer. I mean, can you imagine coming out of the game? I think one of their pitchers gave up like 12 or 13 earned runs, possibly even more. I was, I was trying to follow it uh, while I was calling our game. Sorry, Meg. I was just to like into the 33 runs that was going on and just continue to follow that offense. But their offense like is unbelievable. So you look at, uh, Alo, she has an OPS of 2,200. I, I had to like double check to make sure that the math was going right. So on base percentage plus slugging percentage, her slugging percentage is over 1500. Her on base percentage is almost 700 and her OPS is 2200. She can leave the park. If there were two parks that she was playing in, she would leave both of them because she can hit the ball so hard so far. Definitely one of the standouts for them, but it's just hard to pick one when they have so many weapons and threats in their, in their offense. Yeah. Cra crazy stuff. 21 singles, by the way, in that game. And then, um, Alo, uh, Tiari Jennings and Janet Johns all homered and what a pickup, uh, Jana was Shro. Janet Johns, guys, is playing like a different player. From South Carolina to now OU, it almost looks like she's truly a different player. And I feel like it must be the confidence of surrounding yourself with that those type of hitters. And, and I'm not saying anything against South Carolina, but obviously South Carolina's lineup versus Oklahoma's is a little different. I want to ask you guys your opinion. There was a lot of chatter this weekend about the 33 runs. Some people were upset with Oklahoma. To me, uh, be better. If you're the other team, be better. Don't allow them to score 33 runs. That's my opinion. But what do you guys think? Jenny, what do you think about that? You know, Oklahoma reminds me a lot of the Arizona teams that I played on back in the 90s where our offense was just electric and the ball left the park all the time. It's hard to get opponents to come in and play you. So the opponents that they're playing right now may not be up to like World Series um, caliber, but they're willing to go in and get better. So Jen, to your point, get better. They're trying to, they're there playing the best so that they can point out their weaknesses, work on them during the week, and then improve through the weeks going into the college world series to hopefully get a chance at the postseason. But 
I'm going to have to say, I understand the hard part of the scheduling because I wouldn't want to go in and play at Oklahoma, but also they've got to do their job and just continue to rake. Yeah. I, I think what, th cause this comes up in all sports, right? About whether or not you're running up the score or, or things like that. One of the things I look at in these types of situations is as, as an Oklahoma in this situation, how many subs are you using? And Oklahoma used eight subs that game. So they were using pinch hitters. They were giving other people opportunities to get at bats. And I think especially this year with such deep rosters, that's really all you can do. And you, you're not going to ask a pinch hitter or a sub to not try. That's not fair to them either because they're fighting for a spot in the lineup and they're trying to impress the coaches. So, you know, you'd love to see uh, games that aren't so lopsided, but you really can't blame them. Uh, you know, for, for kids that are getting an opportunity to come in as a sub and try to, you know, hit it as hard as they can or throw it as hard as they can. Um, and you're, I think you're absolutely right, Beth. And I think that is something that sticks out. You want to take advantage of those opportunities that your coach gives you. You don't want to be an easy out. Like you're trying to earn a starting spot. And so I'm looking too at their schedule. Their toughest game that they've played so far is Arizona State. And Arizona State played well in that game. Oklahoma beat them five to three. However, this weekend they play Missouri twice in Norman. Missouri, the type of team that is feisty. They're gritty. They're going to want to be in every pitch in every inning with Oklahoma. So Missouri actually has a chance to go up against the big dogs, right? A team that we've been talking about that continues to rise in the rankings and get our attention. I'm super interested to keep my eye on both of those games once Saturday and then once Sunday that I think that might be a good one, or at least I hope it is as a fan. Like I hope it's a close matchup and we see what Missouri is capable of. Yeah. And one other thing to remember when we start looking at stats as the season continues. So of their 12 games, seven of their games, they've scored double digit uh, runs. So 29 in their first game of the season against um, University of Texas El Paso, 21 the second time they played them a couple days later. So they their numbers have just been, they're, they're fluffy right now. So it will be interesting to see once they start getting against the, uh, the, the, the better pitching, as you mentioned, Amanda, the Missouris, and then they get in conference and uh, what we'll probably take the beginning of the season and, and kind of categorize it out and then go the middle of the season and, and, and get some true numbers. It'll be interesting. Well, Michelle, I like how you said fluffy numbers because right now Oklahoma is leading the nation in batting average and also team runs. And we know that because they've been scoring them off the charts, but they've got six errors, which puts them 34th nationally in fielding percentage. Do you know which team, this is a question for all of you, which team has the most errors in division one softball right now? Well, we covered LSU the other day, and they had quite a few. I don't know if they have the most or not. I would say LSU. It's Alabama. with a What? So I, I'm going to say it. Defense wins ballgames, and defense wins championships. So it's hard to out-hit a bad defense. So they've got to make sure that you clean up that fielding percentage to make sure that you go all the way. Way to sneak in a shag in stats, number one. And number two, way to take over the leader in the clubhouse for the name of this episode, Michelle Smith, with the fluffy numbers. Uh, nothing fluffy uh, about the way that uh, Jocelyn Allo swings it and hits it. So four home runs in four consecutive games as we talk about some of the other big blasts of the weekend. Oklahoma, I believe, now up to 44 <laughs> That's almost four per game. Who else had some big swings, some impressive uh, uh, A-Bs? I think Scarborough, did you see Rhodes have a towering drive? I did. That was the furthest home run that I've seen hit 
um, on the field in Austin McCombs, uh, 296 feet that that one went, it went over the center field scoreboard. So these distances that we are seeing, it's so cool, by the way, that we're able to track them now that we have the technology and data to quickly get to the SID and say, Hey, how far did that one go? And he's like, Oh, 296 feet. And you can feel confident about it because before we asked the SID, Alex and I were trying to come up with the geometry of, okay, the scoreboard's this high and it went and the fence is this long. So, I mean, some of these are big bombs and I'm thinking Beth too, about the field size. Like when I played at AM, left field was 190 feet. So it's crazy to think that some of these home runs are 300 feet long and it would have gone out like 110 feet over the fence. That's, uh, go ahead. That, Shannon roads, by the way, how do they measure it? Is it an estimate or is it a tape measure after the game? Uh, through, uh, through like rap Soto or like anything that tracks their, their swings and, and that they use usually at practice too. It's just all hooked up and ready to go during the game. What you got, Tro? I got another one for you guys. Braxton Burnside, a transfer from Missouri. She's at Arkansas now. 299 was her number. So beat out roads by just a few feet. And again, I mean, who knows? Cause I saw yo, their hitting coach at Arkansas, which Michelle, I love that you're wearing that shirt today. Cause I'm going Burnside for our player of the week. Oh, I, I saw yo took the dimensions of the field. Like she took a, a Google map and tried to mark where the ball hit to figure out how far it went. But Burnside's numbers this week were outrageous. Nine for 17, six bombs on the weekend, 11 RBIs. And she is going after my little sister's home run record at Arkansas right now. So we will see. I'm going to be tracking that one, guys. Yeah, it's going to be a it's going to be a close race, Jen. No, but I what I love about both of those swings because those were the two hardest hit balls that we saw this weekend, and I liked how they looked a little bit different. Braxton Burnside goes up there hacking like she takes a big old cut, and I love it. She has a ton of explosivity, and then on the other side, Shannon Rhodes looks effortless and I think Amanda you can correct me if I'm wrong but it was a 3-0 count was it not yeah and the pitcher had just walked the batter in front of her on four straight pitches I think so she had thrown seven straight balls and she still had the 3-0 green light so yes you're right I yeah and that's something that pitchers are going to have to be wary of it there's nobody especially somebody like a Shannon Rhodes that has a lot of power that's kind of been on a roll she hit multiple home runs this weekend was on a hot streak and you can't just pipe something and allow them to go after it with the three Oh count. And that seems kind of a given like, Oh, I just walk somebody on four straight pitches. I get a three Oh count. There's no way they're swinging at it. Well, somebody's going to be ready and they're going to take you extremely deep. <laughs> All right. We're only, we've only been through two, two things on the lineup card and we already have player of the week nominees for Braxton Burnside, Aliyah Andrews and Jocelyn Allo more to come. The pitchers are uh, a little bit further down our lineup card today. Also going to hear from Tyra Perry, the head coach at Illinois, and uh, all, all kinds of good stuff still to come. We're going to move on to number three on our lineup card, and that is the Ducks toppling the Bruins. UCLA did come back and uh, get, to get a win over the Ducks in non-conference games. They'll play again later in the season. But, uh, but what a day for Oregon. You know, we talked about everything – They've been through Jenny Dalton Hill over the last couple of years from the coaching change to all the players leaving to the impressive job and how quickly they have gotten things back together. And here they are at nine and one and very winnable weekends coming in the next uh, 14 days. Well, when you look at what Melissa Lombardi had to deal with when she went into Oregon, there were so many different dynamics going into that coaching change. 
So there's loyalty to the previous coach, but then also bringing in new players. And so for Melissa Lombardi to turn this program around, and I don't even want to say turn it around, but just rebound from the hiccup that happened because of the coaching change, because that Oregon has been a good team for a while. And so they just had a little stumble during that coaching change. And to see them get back up on their feet, beat number one UCLA this last weekend, that just speaks volumes to the culture that Melissa Lombardi has brought into this program. But number one on your back is a really big target and everybody gives you their best game. So you never know what kind of game you're going to get. You just know as a number one team, UCLA, they know what it's like. They've played number one for years as number one. But when it comes to you've got to bring your A game because everybody's bringing their best game every single time. Jen, how did it feel when you were at UCLA? Well, I mean, when I was at UCLA, yeah, we were ranked one a lot of the time. And I think I mentioned this on the last podcast, my class was the first class not to win a national championship. And we're talking about Jelly Selden, who's the strikeout leader in UCLA history, which is pretty crazy when you think about the pitching staffs that we've had. Now you look at someone like Oregon, and you think of Brooke Yanez and her performance against UCLA this week. This is a kid who was a transfer. She was not the big recruit out of high school. She was not the big pitcher. And she went in and she absolutely took it to UCLA. If you were watching that game, to me, it never felt like UCLA was going to win. And I'm going to make a bold statement here. UCLA is not the number one team in the country without Rachel Garcia. They're not. They just simply aren't. It just feels like something is missing with them. And I'm not saying they can't grow and become the team they were last year. I'm not saying they can't win. But right now, they are not the best team in the country without Rachel Garcia. Michelle? Still no, still no word on when Garcia may be able to come back. Smitty? Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting because I think the, this is like almost two different discussions. You're right. hundred percent agree, Jen, about UCLA. Um, last year, they seemed like a very different team this year. They're, they're dealing with a lot of stuff, especially they have Garcia. Now they don't have Garcia. So I'm sure that's a little bit emotionally for the, for the teammates. Like, you know, it's, it's unsettling. I want to go back to Oregon though and say that, you know what, Melissa Lombardi, I have to say I'm impressed. Okay. I was not convinced at all, and I think I mentioned it a couple times, based on their strength of schedule last year, was not impressed that they should have been ranked as high as they were. Even this year, did not think they should be ranked as high as they were because they really had had no test whatsoever. So going into that UCLA game, and I was like, I was like that emoji with the big eyeglass, you know, really watching the game, like, what are we gonna see here? All right, so I have to say, I'm impressed with Oregon. I love the fact that Lombardi has her lefty pitchers like they loved it, or at, uh, excuse me, Oklahoma. So a lot of the same format, a lot of the same formula we're starting to see from the success of Oklahoma is now, you know, kind of trickled up to duck country uh, with Oregon. So I'm impressed with them. They have an ability to hit, to run, obviously pitch. The other interesting thing about the lefty is that Jordan Dale has not had a very good season after she really was the big left arm for them the last couple of years. So if they can write her ship, I think that that's another strong lefty arm for Melissa Lombardi in Oregon. Yeah, and Michelle, I wanted to do, uh, we talked about leadoff hitters earlier today. Obviously, I did at length and I got a little bit excited about it, but whatever. Um, I want to do a case study for the first, the two games that UCLA and Oregon played. Uh, Oregon won the first game, UCLA won the second. In the first game, leadoff hitter Haley Cruz, two for three with a run scored. Bubba Nichols, over four with two Ks. 
game two, complete opposite. Nichols two for four with an RBI, a run scored, and Cruz was one for four, and she left four runners on base. And so that's that's a huge kicker is when you have somebody that goes and sets the tone for the the game that you play, it has a huge impact on the outcome. And beyond that, I looked at not only Bubba Nichols in game two, who got a double right out the gate in the first inning, set the tone, but I like to see players that are gamers that take losses personally. And Aaliyah Jordan for me was a hundred percent that she went three for three, came up with a home run in the first inning. She said, you know what? We're not losing again. I'm not going to put up with that. And I love that. That fires me up. And I know Jen for you, it fires you up too. You guys, Aaliyah Jordan, when we talk about the evolution of Aaliyah Jordan, you're right. She is a gamer, but we've seen her be very vocal on this, um, finding herself this social justice path. And I'm so proud of her because if you followed her a year ago to now, she's just found herself personally, athletically. It's really cool thing to watch. So we all know Oregon, they're the queen of TikToks. They're the queen of reels. Aaliyah Jordan goes on the morning before game two, and she does a TikTok, not, not to, you know, in Oregon's face, but takes the NCAA tweet about them losing and says, make it stop. She literally beats Oregon at their own game of social media. And then she goes up to the plate and just wrecks them game two. I could not be more proud, not as a Bruin, but as a Aaliyah Jordan fan. I loved it. It's the game within the game. Don't tell Haley Cruz that Aaliyah Jordan beat her at TikTok because I know Haley will have something to say about it, but I was impressed. She <laughs> hit a home run her first at bat, right, Jen? Or yeah, crazy. This is, this is some good stuff on the Seven Innings podcast this week. Beth Mullins, Michelle Smith, Jenny Dalton-Hill, Caleb Bro, Amanda Scarborough, Jen Schroeder. We got behind the scenes, all kinds of people that help put this together for us. Buzz Lightyear, Jersey Meg, Vegas Vicky, Kim the PR superstar. And I'm going to try out the first name for our fabulous producer, Aaron Cropper. How about Crop Shop? Because whatever you need, you go to the Crop Shop and this guy delivers. We'll see, how, we'll see if that sticks. We are, uh, oh, by the way, finishing up on Brooke Yanez, it was a complete game, 10 strikeout performance against UCLA, third time this season. She's been in double digit Ks. Speaking of Ks, let's go to K country. Terrific pitching performances and another nominee for seven innings player of the week has got to be Megan Bobian. 41 strikeouts in 21 innings pitched. Even though Michigan lost a couple of times, to Illinois, she she has been fabulous out of the gate uh, as the Big Ten is underway. What else we got in terms of K country fabulous pitching performances? Uh, I'm just going to real quick. I'm just going to interject. We're talking about a lot of lefties with the strikeouts. Just, okay, I'm, I'm muting right now. Go ahead, go ahead a minute. This, this topic's on pitching. You're going to unmute in just a second. But I was going to say the same thing because there are so many lefties that we're talking about. Brooke Yanez, also Megan Bobian, lefty, Kelly Maxwell, Oklahoma State, Danielle Williams, Northwestern. The Big Ten had some really good pitching performances. Now, it was their first week in out, so maybe the pitchers are just a little bit better than the hitters. But nonetheless, you mentioned Megan Bobian, Beth. She struck out the first 17 hitters that she faced in the season opener. Like, what? She had 41 strikeouts in 21 innings. So I also loved, um, in particular, the duos that we're seeing. And so I'm kind of hopping around and talking about the lefties and there's just, I just get so excited, but there's duos happening. So Kelly Maxwell and Carrie Eberly at Oklahoma state, Megan Bobian and Alex Duraco at Michigan, 
Daniel Williams and Lauren Boyd at Northwestern. We're seeing really good pitching performances, especially when you have somebody that you know will have your back. And so not to go back a little bit, that's a big reason why I think UCLA feels different is because it's all Megan Freema without Rachel Garcia, that duo lost the, the second person as of right now. And so you're, you're feeling that. So Michelle, what else stands out to you? Well, I'm going to go to Alabama, Lexi Kilfoyle and Montana Fouts. The two of them have just been racking up the case. Kilfoyle has 43 on the season so far. Fouts, 61. Um, so the two of them together already have breached the, the 100K mark. Um, but I love the fact, too, Kilfoyle, just four walks on the year. Montana Fouts, just three walks on the year. So they are peppering the zone. They're hammering that ball hard um, and, uh, and getting it done around the plate. So I love the fact that Alabama is, uh, has righted that ship because last year that was a little bit of a problem for Montana Fouts. So she's worked very hard in the off season to make sure that the K numbers are back up and the walks are back down. Well, and Michelle, you bring up that Alabama series over the weekend. Another pitcher I'd like to highlight from that series, they may not have been very successful in the wins column, but is Leanna Johnson of Troy. She has 96 strikeouts on the year, and she's now second in the NC2A in strikeouts. And so for me, with 33 strikeouts over the weekend in Alabama, a complete game shutout against North Carolina with 13 strikeouts, she was outshone by those Alabama performances that you were talking about, but for her, she's a big spark plug for Troy. And then I'd also like to talk about Ashley Rogers at Tennessee, who was out last year with a back injury. So her freshman year, she was lights out. And then last year had to sit out. Luckily she gets the pandemic, right? Blessings in disguise. So she gets the pandemic. She's able to heal and comes back. She had 41 strikeouts on the weekend in 19 inning, innings pitched. And for Tennessee, that's a bright spot in what could be a tough year for them in the circle. A couple quick little stats. Megan Bobian, who we've been talking about, she's averaging almost two strikeouts per inning, 1.95. Keely Richard, 1.13. And Gabby Plain, 1.79. But Amanda, to your point about the duo, we have barely talked about Washington on this podcast. We've barely talked about Gabby Plain. She has won a national award every single week. She's been the most quiet, dominant pitcher in NCAA softball because Washington is dropping games they shouldn't. They're losing to people like SDSU. So I was thinking about this the other night. It's funny that you brought this up, Amanda. I don't think the team that only has one dominant pitcher will win the championship this year. I think it needs to be a staff. And I think that's why Washington is struggling, despite the fact that Gabby Plain's averaging 1.79 strikeouts per inning. It's got to be a team that has some sort of duo or a staff. Kayla? Uh, you read my mind, Jen, like literally took the words out of my mouth because I was going to say, Amanda, you just hit like the nail on the head with you need two people. It, the duos are important and you can see the really successful team so far have multiple pitchers. And I think we saw a different UCLA team with one pitcher. Ashley Rogers is another one that I worry about because for Tennessee, she's really it. She's going to carry the load. And for Gabby Plain, she's thrown 53 innings. The next is Kelly Lynch, who's thrown 25. And then after that, the rest of their pitchers are in single digit innings. So I really question the teams that only have one really true ace. How are they going to be able to get to stay healthy through the end of the season and try and find their way to the postseason in the world series eventually? Okay. Agree a hundred percent with all of that, but here's my question. How many, how many pitchers are too many? Okay. So do, is it a duo or a trio? 
when you start getting four or five arms, how do you get enough reps for your pitchers? And, and I want to revert back to Alabama because do you remember how diplomatic he was last year, uh, Coach Murphy was, how there were so many arms getting a lot of work the last couple of years. This year, it's primarily Kilfoyle and Fouts. If you look back at the other pitchers, uh, Sarah Cornell, Crystal Goodman, they don't have near the innings, nine and eight respectively to the 38 and 33 innings. So I think it is going to be interesting that a lot of coaches are going to have to make those tough decisions, but I think two arms, maybe a third after that, you got to be careful. That's why it'll be interesting to follow the, the baseball mentality of being able to throw three or four pitchers in a game, because we see that a lot across the country, but it also kind of makes more room for air to be able to use these different pitchers. Every pitcher has to be on. And so I don't know, I think duo might, might be the trick, right? Not relying on one, but not relying on a complete staff to throw four arms in one game. I don't know if that gets you to the world series either. It's been unproven to this or not get you the world series. I think it could get you there, but win you a national championship that's still yet to be determined too. And, and the other thing too that I, I'm looking forward to when we get to the, get to World Series time or Super Regional time, if you have Pac-12 versus Pac-12 or a Big Ten versus a Big Ten, and with the re-entry rule the way it is, you now have head-to-head -head, uh, more head-to-head -head data on a particular pitcher against a particular hitter. So will we see? Um, um, you know, Gabby Plain against Bubba Nichols. Uh, and then will there be a substitute pitcher coming on to face uh, Aaliyah Jordan because she had success against Aaliyah during the year? And then you go back to Gabby Plain after that. I, I, I think that's going to be interesting to see if that plays out too, Shro. Well, not only that, but what about the schedule? Because in the Pac-12, they're going to play four games a weekend, right? So when you talk about a duo, I think a team like UCLA is going to need to use Holly Acevedo more because four games in a weekend is a lot on a staff. It's a lot on a team in general. But then you take a look at the Big Ten, and they're only playing the Big Ten. So they're playing less games in a total season. Will one pitcher or will one and a half pitchers be able to take them through to postseason? So we can't just say it's going to be the same for every single NCAA team because every, some people are going to play 100 games. Some people are going to pay, play 50 games. It's such a difference this year because of COVID and schedule changes. Good stuff. Uh, it's going to be great to, to see how it all plays out. Let's move on in our uh, lineup card now and let's talk about the fighting Illini who had only beaten Michigan six times ever. And they beat them twice, swept a doubleheader led by Sidney Sickles in the circle. And Bella Loya took care of the run production at the plate. The Fighting Illini, is this a team to watch now in, in a Big Ten conference that uh, may be a little deeper than we expected? I just need to talk about Bella Loya. I know you mentioned her. She's their catcher. So I, I've known her since she was 11 years old. Guys, her first catching lesson, I had to teach her and Tara McGowan. They came in together how to strap on their gear. They were actually wearing them on the wrong legs. True story. It's hilarious. But Bella is someone who always played behind Tara. They went to high school together. They played travel ball together. I'm talking from 11 years old on to 18 years old. At Illinois, if you look at her stats and her career, she has been one of the most underrated players in NCAA. She is so good. She's a team captain. She throws people out. She gets the big hits. When you look at the energy and the culture that Tyra Perry is creating at Illinois, it is something special. And then Amanda, I know that you're impressed with Sydney Sickle over there and what she was able to do in the Big Ten in her opening weekend this weekend. 
Yeah, I think I think she was such a big part of it. I mean, anytime that you can say you swept Michigan, beat Michigan in the Big Ten, they're they're the perennial powerhouse, them and, and Minnesota. It's always a big win to make your program feel good. And I think that we'll be talking about this a lot as the year goes on, but I think that Illinois is one of those teams that could really actually benefit from a conference only season. Looking back to their 2020 season, they ended that canceled shortened season 11 and 11, and they scheduled hard. They played Auburn, Notre Dame, North Carolina state Baylor, um, and an Ole Miss team that was ranked at the time. And so they came away with an 11, they played tough, but now that they're only playing a big 10 schedule, they're a team that could finish at the top of the big 10 and potentially be one of those teams that we're saying, Hmm, should they, or shouldn't they be in the NCAA tournament? Because they're, you're not being able to compare to a tougher schedule playing ranked teams outside their conference. So when I think of Illinois as starting six and one compared to 11 and 11 last year, this is a team that could really build momentum and be one that we're talking about in May. Well, and let's bring this all the way back full circle, Amanda, their leadoff hitter, Avery Steiner. I was able to coach her in travel ball leading up to her career at Illinois. She led the offense in 2020. She leads the offense in 2021. She has the most stolen bases, the highest batting average. She's tied for the most doubles. She had the go-ahead RBI versus Michigan in game two, and she scored the first run in game one. So that leadoff hitter sets the tone, and it looks like Illinois has found the right fit. And our Holly Rowe was able to catch up with their head coach, Tyra Perry. We are so excited because this is the first time we have had Coach Tyra Perry from Illinois on the podcast. Congratulations on a fun opening weekend. You know, the Big Ten has gotten started kind of later than every other conference. Uh, What has it been like to sit and watch everybody else play and then finally have that opportunity? Oh, it was pretty excruciating. You know, it's like pain in the heart, you know, so uh, we're all so competitive and, you know, to have to sit on the sidelines for two weeks, it was, it was pretty tough, but, you know, it was, it it made this uh, weekend that much more exciting. It was like Christmas. Yeah, it really was. I mean, you guys have decided to go with the conference only schedule, but you have this tournament down in Florida. So I just wondered how unusual it was just to wrap your head around, like we're starting big 10 play and it's our first games out of the gate. It, you know, it's been almost a complete solid year since we've had competition. So, you know, I was like, Oh, you know, I need to do a lineup, you know? Oh, you know, and, and then there's this mask on my face, you know, and uh, my glasses were fogged up, you know, half of the time trying to figure out the, you know, the glasses to mask, you know, situation. So it's definitely different. Um, Even, you know, from the standpoint of we've been pretty isolated around here. So just being around uh, people on a plane and in an airport, you know, that was interesting as well. So it, it was different, but uh, you know, my players were just so excited to be around each other and so si- excited to see the dirt and the grass. And um, you know, they really didn't dwell, you know, very long on, oh wow, we're playing Rutgers. Oh wow, we're playing Maryland, Michigan. You know, so they just were like, oh, we're playing softball. That's so exciting. You know, you have made such great progress there at Illinois, getting to the regionals in 2019. You already have three top 25 wins last season before things were shut down and then you come out of the gate and you sweep Michigan and you know they have been the cream of the Big Ten for such a long time what does that tell you about the progress you've made with your program after you took over in 2015? 
Uh, you know, it, it takes a village. So, you know, <laughs> I, I do a lot of the management, you know, piece and, you know, definitely some of the softball portion of it, but, you know, my crew, Laura Trout, um, if you haven't seen her, she's a, uh, you know, fiery redhead from the Lou Harris Champer, you know, regime at Georgia. So she does a great job with our hitters and our infielders. Uh, and then I have Lance McMahon, you know, who was at Missouri, who was with Beth Tarina at LSU. So, He's really coming into his own with our pitching staff. And we have six, six arms. So it's really, you know, um, great that we, we did that on purpose, especially, you know, once we kind of saw the conference format, we played six games this weekend. We'll play six games when we go back to Florida and then we'll play four game series against, you know, the same opponent, conference opponent. So we were like, you know what, we need more arms. So he's been great, but uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a full team effort. Yeah, you know, you talk about the different schedules. So you guys start, you have this big series in Florida, but then you'll have a break um, until March 11th. And I just wondered, like, how kind of nice is that? Because sometimes you start the season and it's just a grind. You've got game after game after game. Now you see what you've got to work on after opening weekend that you can go back and really dig into before you, you come back and start that next series March 11th. Well, there's a portion of this that's frustrating. You know, you, you have no non-conference play, which makes it honestly pretty difficult to develop your freshmen. You know, are you going to really throw, you know, all your freshmen out there and you're in conference games, you know? So that's what, you know, when you have those non-conference games, you can kind of, you know, push and pull and try this and try that. And, you know, we don't have an opportunity to do that. But on the other hand, we were able to go to the Chicago airport and we had decent weather because it wasn't the beginning of February. You know, it was a little bit later uh, when we go again in March, you know, we'll probably have, you know, a, a decent chance of making it to Florida. <laughs> it's a nice weather. And, um, you know, because there's been times where we were, we've been stuck in the Chicago airport for hours and, you know, very unsure if, if we're going to make it to our destination when we start you know, so early. So there's a portion of this that is smart. It is student athlete friendly. Um, you know, we get a huge break and uh, we're going to take a few days off and then do a couple of individual work and some film sessions, things that I've never been able to do, especially once I became a coach in the Midwest and we travel so frequently, so often we're often in airports. So some of this is, is good. Right. We're, I think we're going to take some of the good and the bad this year. It's a weird year. But I think there are going to be positives that come out of this as we all learn how to adapt. Okay, speaking of adapting, as I was digging into your background a little bit, I just think it's fascinating. You have been the Sunbelt Coach of the Year, the MAC Coach of the Year, and I have no doubt that you are going to be the Coach of the Year in the Big Ten at some point in your lifetime because you're just on a really wonderful track. I wondered, what do you think it is that has made you successful as a head coach? Uh, it's at some point... I figured out that it's about relationships. Um, when I first started, I was 23 years old, fresh out of playing. So I've never been an assistant coach. I went straight into, you know, the head coaching hat. And uh, I thought that I could have this great scheme and teach all this softball and, you know, win games. And I found out quickly that it doesn't work like that. So eventually I started realizing that, you know, it's about the, weddings that you get invited to. It's about the pictures of the babies, you know, that, uh, and the baby showers, you know, that you become a part of as your players move on and grow. It's the 10 30 PM phone calls that you get from 
your players that are now coaches and they want to talk about hitting and coach, what do you think about this? And, you know, once I started getting to that point and understanding that it's about who they are as a person and, you know, how you can impact their life and things became a lot better and, and winning followed, you know, that particular mentality. I love it. Well, I appreciate your time quickly. Just tell me, you talked about the six arms in the circle. Tell me a little bit about your hitting. Like, what are you looking forward to? Or what do you think you can really lean on this season? Well, right now uh, we struck out entirely too much <laughs> this past weekend. So Coach Trout and I are putting our heads together uh, there. But that being said, I think we had the second highest team batting average uh, of the weekend. So, so we did some things right, you know, of course. But, um, you know, just tough at bats, you know, making sure that we – out tough the pitcher because it's basically a battle between you know the person in the circle and the person at the plate and so we're, we're just trying to create a mentality of fighting a line toughness you know we're we're not going to be denied we're going to put a bunt down we're going to slap we're going to we're going to you know hit a gap you know maybe maybe we don't have a ton of home runs this year maybe we will but we're just about you know being a tough out seeing as many pitches as we can making the pitcher work I love it. Well, you're off to such a great start. Really exciting opening weekend for you. Five and one for the Illini. So thank you so much, Coach Perry. We appreciate your time today and can't wait to see what's next as we see you guys fight from pitch to pitch. It'll be so fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, terrific stuff on, on uh, what we're calling this week, Illinois. Put an E on the end of the state, making some Illinois uh, and our on our lineup card, and and it's always fun to watch uh, some of these teams as they as they make a move and, and try and take on the big dogs uh, in their conferences and and in the country. Illinois, a, a real good feel feel good story here to start out um, the year. Time now for a Holly Rollis shagging stats. This week on shagging stats, and who better to lead us off? Then the one, the only, dancing in the rain leadoff hitter from 2012, Kayla Bro. Wow. <laughs> I can't ask for a better introduction than that. So thank you for that, Beth. Um, no, I'm going to kick it off. I, I wanted to find somebody kind of in line with our, you know, people that get on base a lot, who's leading the country in hits. And it is Sammy Williams from Iowa State. She's just having an incredible year, hitting 500. She's got nine home runs, but 25 hits leads the country. I'll stay in the big 12, Kayla, and I will go to Texas who as a team, they're hitting 361 with two strikes and 393 with runners and scoring position. All right. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to, of course, throw out a, a, a pitching shag and sad. How about uh, Auburn? We haven't talked about them uh, a lot. And I, I think this is a program that's emerging. Uh, Auburn's Maddie Penta, freshman right-handed pitcher from Maryland. She came out and she threw two complete games, but the stat that I love a 0.89 batting average against, if you can't hit your way on base, you're going to have a hard time scoring runs. And that's exactly what happened. She struck out 27 batters in her 14 innings. Pretty impressive for the freshman. Michelle, that's awesome. I'm going to have a shag and stat with the big old goose egg zero, which teams have committed zero errors. There's five of them with a perfect fielding percentage. And right now they are Maryland, Stony Brook, Wisconsin, Central Michigan, and Lehigh. And I'm going to break the rules. And since Amanda used that word duo, I'm going to throw out two shag and stats. My first one, give a little catcher's love to Kelsey Leach. She has thrown out six of the nine attempted runners in only seven games. That's impressive. And that is not easy. 
But I do want to give a little home reaction to Megan Faremo because she did have a perfect game this week and we didn't talk about it. She had a perfect game against SDSU, who then came and beat Washington. But that was UCLA's 19th perfect game all time. And I went to try and dig with the NCAA to see, hey, is, is that nation leading? Is that all, you know, all NCAA? And they don't track that stat. So I reached out to, to Graham Hayes because obviously he's all of our friend. And if anyone knows anything about softball, it's Graham. And so he dug a little deeper and he goes, okay, by, by assumption, if, if you have three perfect games, you're on the all-time list. Arizona in total has nine. So if we kind of do some math, we're thinking that 19 perfect games is all time. Guys, Kat Osterman, she had nine perfect games herself. Kat Osterman has as many perfect games as Arizona. I, I'm, I sh I'm shocked. I texted her, I said, Kat, did you have nine perfect games? So nonchalant. Yeah, I didn't know it was a big deal then, but now I realize it was. <laughs> Why, why does, why does Smitty look like the cat who ate the canary? Weren't you cats pitching coach as a youngster? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I worked with her when she was shorter than me. And then all of a sudden she was taller than me. And yes, I taught her her curveball when uh, she would come to Tampa, Florida to visit her relatives, but I cannot take any credit. The kid was gifted from the day uh, she put her spikes on. So let me see if I can put my foot in my mouth here. Shro of those 19 perfects. Did you catch any of those in your UCLA career? One. Yeah. One, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about it. Honestly, guys, I, I mentioned Jelly Selden on this podcast a little bit earlier. There is no doubt in my mind that she is one of the most talented pitchers to ever throw. And what a lot of people don't know is we honestly threw one pitch the whole entire time, but just to locations. And everyone assumes it was a drop ball. Jelly had the best drop ball in the country. If, if you ask players of our generation, they didn't even want to sack bunt against her because the ball would literally just fall off the table and it would miss their barrels. Uh, but that was just her fastball. It was just, she's just, you talk about talent, Michelle, you talk about Kat putting on her cleats and being gifted. That's the type of gift that Jelly Selden had to throw the ball. And I'll never forget, she, she bought me a, a necklace, like a karma circle necklace after that perfect game. Pretty cool. Like I felt like a big leaguer, you know, except for they probably were getting like $250,000 watches, but Hey, my $25 necklace was awesome. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. She bought you a gift. I just want to interject and say the, the passion and the energy that Jen Schroeder talks with about catching, that's what pitchers, that's what makes pitchers throw perfect games. It's that battery aspect. It's that back and forth. And I can guarantee you any elite pitcher will tell you that the, the catcher is vital for any, any amount of success, especially in no hitters and perfect games. So I love that you're sharing all that, Jen. That, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and Jelly is one of those players, you know, sometimes these, these great stories get lost to history, but you know, one of my, um, one of the biggest and one of the greatest discussions we've ever had on air was the 2005 uh, championship series when um, uh, Michigan chose not to pitch to Emily Zaplatash ended up being the winning strategy. She had the hot bat in the postseason that year. And I'll never forget UCLA and Jelly Selden, you know, we're not afraid of anybody. We're not ducking anybody. We're going to throw at, at Sam Finley. And of course, Finley hit the, the home run that ultimately was the game winner. But it's one of those great discussions, you know, in softball history, whether or not it was the right thing. But I do tip my cap to that kind of confidence and that kind of sort of, uh, you know, I, I want to swear here, but I won't. That screw you mentality. We're not backing down. We're, we're going we're gonna to come at you. And, and if we lose... To your best, okay, but at least we tried to win with our best. And so that's 
a little jelly love. I always admired that kind of attitude and, and the, the want to in those types of situations, you know, when the, the game and the season is on the line. We've covered a whole lot of ground today and we're not done yet. A little jelly love. I think Shro's already working on her list of best team TikToks. Smitty as the monocle emoji. I'll never be able to get that out of my head. Um, the great talk about needing a staff to win a title this year. And how about our scientist in residence, Kayla Bro, with the first case study ever in the history of Seven Innings Podcast. You know, I like to shorten people's names, like Scarborough is just B-O-R-O. Bro is actually just B-R-O. But if you spell the name properly, B-R-A-U-D, that is best research and unbelievable data. That is the Caleb Bro case study on the show today. Time now at the bottom of the order for a revelation. And we're talking about Rhonda Ravel, win number 1,000 at Nebraska. That's actually the last shagging stat of the day, by the way. The first ever to play in the World Series and then take her alma mater back as a coach to the World Series. A great shagging stat for Rhonda Ravel at the World Series as a player and a coach. So we need a little Rhonda love from the group. We also need some of the other stories we've had. I think there's still some unbeatens left. And then we need to uh, nominate our player of the week. Uh, since Rhonda's been around a while, let's start with the old timer, Smitty. <laughs> okay, let me get my cane out and move it's forward here. Um, <laughs> so uh, I just wanna say Rhonda Rebel is a quality coach and an amazing person. She used to throw batting practice back in the day when it was women's major fast pitch. She would come and voluntarily throw uh, batting practice to um, the Reading Rebels at our national championship tournaments. And she would work with you. She'd help tweak things. Just an incredible individual that is always there to help the player. She is a player's uh, manager, a player's coach. And I, I love the fact that she has been at Nebraska so long that she supported that program and they've supported her. So congratulations, Rhonda Rebell on the thousand career wins. Uh, you're, you're in a very, very esteemed category with a lot of other great coaches. Well, and I mean, yeah, everything that you just said, Michelle, I think that Rhonda is just such a amazing person to be around as a coach. And also as a person, she's so positive. She's so motivating. Um, just always a ray of light to be around. And so I think of um, a couple of years ago, I'm a little bit lost on my ears because of 2020, but she, Nebraska had had a tough year and she actually fired herself at the end of the year. And she went in the summer, she researched, she worked hard and she had to earn her own job back after she fired herself. So all the while she expects a lot out of her players and her players can come to her no matter what. She also expects a lot out of herself. And she is a coach who never settles with mediocrity or for mediocrity and is always looking to find ways to get better. Even if I had never heard of this before in my life that she fired herself, she's always looking to be creative and find ways. And one word that I think of when I think of Rhonda Ravel is selfless. When you look at how many people were congratulating her on Twitter, she could have easily just responded, thank you. And if you look at every one of her replies, I'm pulling them up, she finds a way to point out something about the, the other person. So, so even to Nebraska's equipment manager, this is her response. 
Thank you for all you do. They're congratulating her for her thousand wins. Thank you for all you do. Your hours are long. You all get to crush it with a great spirit of service. We all need to take a page out of your playbook. And if you look, there's just response after response of Rhonda not talking about herself, even though, are you kidding me? A thousand wins is incredible, but putting it on and being thankful to the people who helped her get there. And, and I don't think they make people and coaches like Rhonda Ravel anymore. She's just a fantastic human being. 1,000 wins, a, a great milestone. A, a, a few other things to get to. We, we had not one Hannah walk-off this past week, but two Hannah walk-offs, uh, Hannah Adams and Hannah Bowen. So congratulations to them. Uh, the, the list of unbeatens, Amanda Scarborough, is dwindling, uh, but the Salukis of Southern Illinois are still there at 9-0, and uh, and actually an 18-game win streak dating back to last year for Coach Kerry Blaylock. So the unbeatens include the Salukis as well as some big names. Yeah. The other two that I have, and uh, everybody else can jump in here. I wish there was like just one place in the NCA website that just listed everybody's um, team record, but I have Northwestern at six and zero, and Texas is unbeaten. I think that they are eight and zero. Um, so those are two bigger names. Of course, Northwestern has only played one weekend and Texas has had limited games too, because of some cancellations. So a smaller sample size, so to speak, but they're uh, unbeaten as well. All right. And the Salukis led by Carly, Joe Clark, Maddie Eberly, and Sarah Harness, all three and zero for that nine zero start with wins over Mississippi state and DePaul. So there's another team to keep your eye on as we move forward. Time now for our player of the week. And I think, um, I think Jen Schroeder might have the leader here in Braxton Burnside. You wanna give us her resume as Smitty pops her chest with her Arkansas softball swag t-shirt. I think that Braxton wins only because Michelle dressed the part today. It was like that, you know, when you go to the movie theater and you see the popcorn and the Coke, it's like Michelle's just trying to wow everyone over. And, and I know, I know you're friends with Yo too. Yep. So I'm sure she gave you that shirt, but Braxton Burnside, nine for 17, six home runs, one of which was right under 300 feet long, 11 RBIs. Those are some wild stats on the week. All right, I'll second that nomination. I, I will too, especially because I have the shirt on. Thank you, Yonda McRae, <laughs> Courtney Dyfel. I appreciate the swag. I like that too. I like the. I like those stats. All right, Player of the Week. They're calling the Hogs in Fayetteville, folks. Braxton Burnside, our seven innings podcast Player of the Week. That that's going to do it, I think, for the show. Wait, Beth, I have a couple more unbeatens. I just want to get in as I've been just fri- like just researching over here. I forgot about Arizona. Sorry, Jenny. Um, Alabama as well. Florida is also mm-hmm. undefeated. Wait, came close. Florida has had some close calls uh, as well as Kentucky. And there might be a couple of more. So I am going to continue to research and track that for next week as we go. And one more thing, I'm going to butt in too. I, Holly's not here this week. So I feel like we can just like butt in more. We're going to take Holly's place, you know? We haven't talked about scooping this week, guys, from Arizona. She was the, the Pac-12 player and freshman of the week with four home runs, 15 RBIs. Those are some pretty crazy stats. I still vote Braxton Burnside, but we just didn't get her name in in this podcast, and I thought she's deserved of a mention. Holly Rowe would be proud, Shro. That is a good little bump in right there. Nicely done. Nicely done. Hey, that's the 7 Innings Podcast. We hope you follow along on your social media uh, and let us know what you think of our, our producer's new nickname, Crop Shop. I almost went with Crop Top, but I didn't want the image of a dude wearing a Crop Top uh, shirt, so we went with Crop Shop. We'll see if that, that sticks. With Kim, the PR superstar, Vegas Vicky, Jersey Meg, 
Buzz Lightyear behind the scenes, and of course, our amazing cast of characters, Shro, Scarborough, Bro, JDH, Smitty, and BMO.